The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. This morning's scripture is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the pew. And if you don't have your own Bible at home, please feel free to take one of the pew Bibles home with you as a gift from Park Church. That's Zechariah chapter 9. And if you're using the pew Bible, it's on page 748. Towards the end of the Old Testament. All right, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are you all? Yeah? And a woo over here. That's good. Uh, my name is Jason. I am one of the pastors uh, here at Park. It's a joy to be uh, with you this morning. Before we pray, before we get into our text, I just want to talk about a few things. Uh, we live in a very hard world. We live in a very tough world. I don't know about you, often it feels like more than I can bear. It seems like after you hear of the last school shooting, you hear of the next genocide going on around the world, or you hear that Russia is moving nukes to Belarus, right? Perhaps you feel it as well. Perhaps it's burden to you as well. So much of our personal lives and so much of what we know about personally and then what we read about or what we watch on the news is traumatizing to our soul. I mentioned school shootings, another one in our community a matter of a week and a half ago. Abuse in various forms we have in our society and all around the globe. We have a superpower country escalating war against its neighboring country. Then there are the miscarriages and infertility that marriages feel. We have earthquakes that kill hundreds or thousands of people. The death of a family member, maybe the death of a spouse, heard about one again just this week. Or maybe the death of a friend. I mentioned genocides across our globe. The political strife and division in our own country over the last few years, I would venture a guess that almost all of you have lost friends somehow, some way, because of your political thoughts these last few years. We battle the sin of racism and the systemic oppression that that's wrought. Human trafficking, human trafficking across our globe and in our own city. I was talking with a uh, a legal expert a few years back who was telling me that every year during the stock show, and I really like the stock show, every year during the stock show, sex trafficking 
and the amount of people brought into Denver for sex trafficking goes way up during the stock show. Made me so sad. And as I heard it, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Whenever you have a large gathering of humans, you have a large gathering of sin. And then we have just the the general tearing down of one another that we do in order to feel better about ourselves, in order to feel superior. We make jokes or we put people down. We tear people down in order to just feel a little bit better than them. There's a new sad or horrific event daily, either in our personal lives or that come across our news feed. Sometimes, often, it's both. Something happens to you, you get, a, you get a cancer diagnosis, or a friend of yours, or your spouse gets a cancer diagnosis, and then you also hear about the tragedy that happened halfway around the world that same day. And let's be honest, most of the times, it's multiple things a day. There's so much pain in our world. I didn't start this off to depress you. I think it's just the reality of where we're at. And partly I just wanted to get up here because my heart is heavy. My heart is sad. I didn't plan on saying this, but here's the spoiler alert. Later in our sermon, later in the word of God, we'll find. These are the things that Jesus came to heal. These are the things that he came to fix, to make right. So, because that's true, let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word says that you are a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Thank you, Lord, that you came in our nature, uh, that you came as a human, you lived uh, a human life, and so you know what it's like to live here in this world. You know what it is like to experience pain. You know what it's like to experience joy as well. We know that life is a mixture of those, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you can identify with where we do feel pain, though, where we do feel difficulty that draws us to you, Lord. Jesus, as we uh, go throughout uh, your text uh, today, and as we look at various uh, scripture passages today, Lord, I pray two things, um, especially two things. Lord, for the person who's here, and, and they, are, they, are, they already follow you. They've been rescued and redeemed. You've opened the eyes of their heart, and they believe, Lord, would you encourage today? Would you remind today that you are who you say you are? You did what you say you did. You accomplished what you say you accomplished. Lord, would you, as we journey this life in faith, and it's hard, would you give the believer today uh, more fuel to keep going, more encouragement to keep going? Lord, I also pray for the person who's here who doesn't believe uh, that you are who you say you are. Uh, perhaps hostile to it, or perhaps just, I don't know. 
if Jesus is who he says he is. Lord, would you open blind eyes today? Would you rescue today by your word uh, as we uh, unpack it? Lord, would you use uh, something here to open blind eyes? We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, our, so our text this morning is from Zechariah 9.9. If you close your Bible, uh, go ahead and open it back up to there. Just a second here. So Zechariah 9.9 is about the coming king of God's people. This is the Old Testament prophecy that was fulfilled as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the day that in many of your Bibles is labeled the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry accounts in each of the four Gospels, and they show up in all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That triumphal entry story shows up in each one. This is what we generally think about when we arrive at Palm Sunday in our liturgical year. Zechariah 9.9 follows eight verses. So nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, follows eight verses of the Lord declaring judgment against the enemies of the Israelites. These are physical, flesh and blood enemies. And then after this, Zechariah, the priest and prophet, commands the Israelites to rejoice and to rejoice greatly, to shout aloud. Why? Because your king is coming. Perhaps you don't have this, but when I come to this verse or this transition, I wonder, what's going on here? It seems like an odd transition to me. Eight verses, judgment against God's enemies, uh, or the the enemies of God's people, and then rejoice. Rejoice greatly. Feels like there's more going on. And I ask myself, why does the prophecy of Zechariah flow from the coming judgment of God's enemies or of Israel's enemies to the rejoicing that the king of God's people is drawing near. As we attempt to answer that, keep a finger here or keep a ribbon here if you have the Bible ribbons. Keep a ribbon here uh, in Zechariah and we're gonna turn over to a few gospel accounts to see if we begin to answer. What's going on here? Flip first, if you would, to Mark ten thirty-five. So, Mark 10, 35, goes like this. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do uh, for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine the boldness, just to pause right there, to approach Jesus? And I'm sure we all do that. But when you read it, it's like, wow, that's really bold. Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. See, James and John are likely not referring to Jesus' heavenly glorified kingdom. No, as, as Jesus is entering toward, or as he's journeying toward Jerusalem, James and John are asking if they can sit one on his right and one on his left hand in his glory as he sits on the throne and rules in Jerusalem. They're thinking of Jesus almost solely as a political Messiah. He's going to enter Jerusalem. He's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to establish Israel to its former glory. And we want to sit by them, by the king, as he rules there. 
So hang on to that. Flip to John 12 now, if you would. John 12, and we're going to start reading in verse 12. This is the account, this is the Apostle John's account of the events that we generally think of as we consider Palm Sunday. So John 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, salvation, salvation has come. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. First thing to notice here in verse 12 is that the disciples don't understand these things at first. Text says right there, he's coming in, entering on a donkey. His disciples did not understand these things at first, not until he was glorified, not until he was raised up to the Father did they understand these things. Perhaps the disciples understand somehow, some way, this is a playing out of Zechariah 9.9, but they are missing something greater. They are missing a greater understanding of Jesus' mission. Notice also what's recorded about the crowd in verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. The crowd who is shouting the right and true things about Jesus. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But they've come because they heard Jesus had done a sign. What sign? It's the raising of Lazarus. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness to that. The crowd uh, crowd had seen him do signs and wonders, or they had heard that he had done signs and wonders, and they're whipped into a frenzy. But they also mistakenly believe that Jesus is coming for something other than what he's coming for. The ESV study Bible note states here that the crowd largely believes he's coming for national deliverance from Israel's political enemies, the Romans. So James and John the disciples, and the majority, if not all of the crowd, don't yet understand the true meaning of Jesus' messianic mission. He hadn't arrived in Jerusalem to deliver Israel from the enemy known as the Roman Empire. He had come instead to deliver a decisive blow to a different set of enemies. Let's turn back now to Zechariah 9.9. We're going to attempt to answer that first question, which was, why does the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 flow from the coming judgment of Israel's of physical enemies to rejoicing that the king of God's people was, gonna, was drawing near? I submit to you 
there's a turn here in the enemies. There's a turn from the enemies that are listed in Zechariah 9, 1 through 8 to a different set of enemies hinted at in verse 9. In his commentary on Zechariah 9, 9, Pastor Richard Phillips writes this. We saw in verses 1 through 8 a prophecy fulfilled in the conquests of Alexander the Great in 333 B.C. The Bible ascribes those military conquests to the Lord himself, the sovereign who stands above every human agency. Now we find, he's talking about as we switch to verse 9, now we find that the military fulfillment points to a greater and spiritual fulfillment, to a spiritual conquest, and to a conquering hero very different from the kind represented by Alexander. So, Let's take a closer look at that coming king from Zechariah 9. We're going to pair it here with some verses about Jesus himself, and we're going to see if we can kind of flush out these additional enemies. First characteristic we're going to notice is this, that this coming king is righteous. Verse 9 starts, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous. This king is free from sin. He's wholly obedient to God. He does what is right and true in the eyes of God. Righteousness is the very fabric of his being, and as such, he is right before God. He is approved by God. This king will be a joy and a delight to the Lord. Now let's consider some New Testament passages from the Gospel of Matthew. You don't have to flip here. I'm just going to read them. Matthew 3, starting in verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Another account from the transfiguration in Matthew 17, transfiguration being when when Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on the mountaintop and they see him talking with Moses and Elijah. Verse 5 there states this, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus checks off the box for righteous. The Father is pleased with him, well pleased. Looking back at Zechariah 9.9, we see also that this, this coming king was humble. He's humble. He comes humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Many conquering kings throughout history rode into their home city on war horses. If it wasn't horses that they were riding on, generally it was chariots being pulled by strong and majestic horses. This signified power. It was a sign of military might. One might also say it signified their reign through violence. That isn't how the coming king of Zechariah 9.9 would come. And that isn't how Jesus rode into Jerusalem. We read this before, but John 12, 14 says this, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, 
daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Again, in his commentary on this passage, Richard Phillips writes this, the donkey was a royal mount in Israel's earlier days. The judges, as well as David, rode a donkey, and Solomon, the king of peace, rode one in his coronation ceremony. This, therefore, was a sign of divine royalty, one characterized by humility and gentleness of spirit. Let us then meditate upon the contrast between the person of Christ and that of every earthly king. Whereas earthly kings rule for their own riches and glory, Christ rules for our salvation. Jesus states about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus not only checks the box of righteous, he checks the box of humility and gentleness. So it's to salvation that we now turn. The king prophesied in Zechariah 9.9, the righteous and humble king would also have salvation in tow. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. This king would bring salvation with him. And I believe it's here, right here, where the additional enemies are hinted at in Zechariah 9.9. It's the crux the crux of what the disciples in the crowd misunderstood about Jesus and his mission as he was entering Jerusalem. They rightly understood that Jesus was bringing salvation with him, but they missed the salvation from what? The Romans? Other Gentiles? Perhaps salvation from people who thought differently than them? Perhaps salvation from people who were inferior to them? From what? From what enemy or enemies? Let's consider this one. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And this, uh, woman, the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then down in verse 14, after Adam and Eve have believed the lie and eaten the fruit and the Lord has come into the garden the Lord God said to the serpent because you've done this because you've lied because you've deceived cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go dust you shall eat all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan, the leader of the kingdom of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, 
is one of our greatest enemies. He desires only to steal, kill, and destroy. And none of us, none of us, in and of ourselves, have what it takes to defeat him and to throw him down. Second, let's consider this enemy. I'm going to read from Jeremiah 2.13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Another Old Testament verse about this enemy is from Zechariah 7, starting in verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. One last one. It's a New Testament reference to this enemy. It comes from Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We as humans have rejected God, the divine author of life, and we carve out for ourselves idol after idol after idol to worship instead. We're tempted often by Satan and our own hearts to go back again and again and again to our sinful ways. To worship ourselves, yes. To worship other gods, yes. But we do this in sneaky, insidious ways. We desire superiority to God and to other people. We desire status, money, fame, acceptance, comfort, safety, security, validation, and the list could go on and on and on. And so often what we do is we put those longings and desires above God, so comfort becomes our God. Safety becomes our God. Security becomes our God. And we don't find our soul satisfaction met in the Lord and who he says that he is and who he says that we are. And then the last great enemy that we have is from Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. To dust you shall return. The wages of sin is death as Romans 6.23 declares. Because we are all in the line of Adam and have sinned against God, we're all given the wages of that sin, so we are all going to die a physical death. And that physical death would mean separation, eternal separation from God. I submit to you, these are the greater enemies 
that need to be conquered by the coming king that is declared in Zechariah 9.9. This righteous and humble king is bringing with him a salvation, but it's a salvation that is greater than any smoting of an earthly flesh and blood enemy. Think back again, if you would, to the very beginning of this talk. Think back again to the traumatizing events that I mentioned. Think about all the pain, the abuse, the death, the loss, the destruction, perhaps in your own life, or just around the world. The positioning for superiority in personal life, business life, social life, political life, or the life of one country over another country. The reason that all of that pain exists in our world, everything of it, is because of these three enemies. Satan, our sin, and death. We need redemption. We need saving. But we need it from our rejection of God. We need salvation from the prison of sin and idolatry. We need salvation from ourselves and from the kingdom of darkness. And we need salvation from death. So apart from the salvation that we need, our earthly death would mean the beginning of our eternal punishment. And here, right here, is the sobering, beautiful, joyful, awe-inspiring truth. That's what Jesus entered Jerusalem to do. In John 12, 31, which is just after what we looked at today in John 12, after Jesus has entered Jerusalem on the donkey, the righteous and humble Jesus declares this, Now, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, Satan, be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then a little bit later in that account, in John 12, 46, Jesus pulls back the curtain a little bit more on his messianic mission. And he says this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. That's the freedom from our sin. That's the breaking of its power. And then one more. A verse on Jesus at his core is actually just a, a chapter before John 12. It's John 11, verse 25. Jesus is talking with Martha, and he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The salvation that the coming king of Zechariah 9.9 would bring, which is fulfilled by the true messianic king Jesus, is the salvation from Satan, sin, and death. And not just merely as a defensive, but now an offensive against the horrific effects of each of those enemies. 
Jesus, the righteous and humble king, brings the ultimate salvation that we need. His intention entering Jerusalem is to bring that salvation with him as he sets his face to the cross as now his entering means the events are set in motion that will cause him to be lifted up. That's why Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day. He's moving toward the cross for me, for you. And he's bringing with him the salvation that was intended in that prophecy. Salvation from Satan and his ownership of our souls. Salvation from our imprisonment to sin and salvation not from a physical death because we're all going to die still. But salvation from an eternal one where we would be separated from God. For those who believe by faith in Jesus and what he came to do that glorious week in Jerusalem, hear now some good news for you. That was actually good news. But hear now some of the glorious implications of that news. You are no longer controlled by Satan. He no longer has power over you. He no longer has sway over you. As a matter of fact, despite what it might look like around us in this world and even in our personal life, he no longer has the authoritative sway in this world. A decisive blow and a decisive victory has been had. Also, you no longer are controlled by your sin and your sinful desires. You're a new person with a new identity in Christ. You can choose now, because you're controlled by the love of God and the will of God, you can choose joyful obedience when at once you might have chosen selfish pride, ambition, and to tear down things in your life. And death, death no longer has a sting to it. It is, as scripture says, swallowed up in victory, such that Paul would say or would quote, oh death, where is your sting? Oh death, where is your victory? It's gone. Because for those who believe, you will see Jesus face to face as the good shepherd who walks through the valley of the shadow of death with you. Zechariah 9.9 opens with a call to rejoice greatly and to shout aloud. I submit to you, these victories are why we could actually rejoice greatly. The victory over these enemies is indeed worthy of rejoicing. The victories here that are accomplished by Jesus, the righteous and humble king, are not only such that we should rejoice, they are such that we should shout loudly from the mountaintops, that we declare it to our city, to the towns, and to the nations. In just a second, the children are going to come processing through here, waving palm branches and singing Hosanna. 
the palm branches were a sign of victory and triumph, which is why the people that day are rightly holding them. I pray a couple of things for you as these children come in. One, children have such majestic voices. Their exuberance is infectious. Please let these children minister to you. So often as adults, we don't let children minister to us. Let them stir your affections for the Lord, mainly because of what they're singing about, also the way they image Jesus. But they are singing about these great truths. As they sing, as they come in, I pray also that you're reminded of what Jesus came to the earth to do, what he entered Jerusalem to accomplish, And I pray that you be reminded of the enemies that no longer stand in your way because he came and he set his face towards the cross. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Let's pray to our King. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for coming here to this earth, being born here in human flesh, living the life we couldn't live, dying the death that we deserve to die, and conquering the enemies that we as dead people could not conquer on our own. We couldn't even fight them on our own. Thank you, God, that you came Set your face to the cross to conquer the enemies that we need conquered in order that we would have right relationship with God the Father. Lord Jesus, would you stir worship in us now? Would you stir affections of a heart for you now as we remember and recall what you have done on our behalf? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.